So for the users that may not know me or a little bit about me, I'm, I'm John Fernandez, my wife Pam, raise your hand up. We just had our 50th wedding anniversary, which is, which, which is, which is actually proof that she knows God, that she, she's been able to stay close to the Lord despite being with me for 50 years. Um, we are, I've been the joy of being the pastor at Grace Church. It'll be 30 years this February that I've been there. And it's also been a joy to get to know uh, Calvary. Uh, I got to meet, uh, of course, I knew Bill for years. We co-pastored in town here. We've been at events together for years. Uh, Bill Walden. And then when Rob came on staff five, six years ago, he started coming to Cornerstone Seminary, where I also teach as one of the professors there. And he was in my classes. So I got to really know Rob and got to appreciate his heart for the Lord, relationship built with him and Jess over the years. We were able to encourage them, watch them as you guys started having kids. And uh, so we just feel so like-minded. Grace Church, with you guys, we almost feel like we're sister churches already. Uh, the Lord raised up Calvary uh, to do some amazing things in Napa. I mean, the Regen ministry, regeneration, and the bridge ministry for uh, outreach to those who are a substance abuse addicted or a substance addicted has been an amazing blessing to our community. So we've had the joy of actually partnering with you guys. We, we made you guys our missionaries. We actually are supporting monthly the bridge. We have members from our church that have been serving not only in the bridge, but serving in Regen for years. So there's just been this cross fellowship. We've had, uh, when the bridge used to make pizza, do you just have the pizza oven, the portable pizza oven? Some of the best pizza I've ever eaten in my life. You guys would bring the pizza truck to our church, and we'd eat pizza. And we, we just love the fellowship and the like-mindedness of the church. So when we announced last Sunday that the Lord was leading Calvary to actually become a part of grace and join partner with us in ministry, the church applauded. They just erupted in applause because they already know you guys. They've heard such good things about, you know, we're so like-minded in terms of the gospel. Bottom, bottom line is, when it's all said and done, it's about Jesus, right? Amen. When it's all said and done, it's about the gospel. It's not about any church, it's not about any individual, it's about Christ. And so it's just exciting for us to think that we can partner together with you guys in reaching the valley uh, for the gospel. So thank you guys for having me today. I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. Um, the vision of God is the foundation of church. Um, seeing God for is who he is is the foundation for the church's worship and for our joy. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to talk about that. Let's read the chapter first, then we will discuss it. Now, just to give you an idea, we're not reading the Apostle John. We're reading John's words as instructed by Jesus. So you're reading what Jesus wants you to see and hear. Chapter 1 of Revelation, he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ given to his people, blessed are those who hear it and obey it. So this is the word of Christ. And I'm going to get on a 30-second bunny trail right here. Don't tell me about what Paul's view is, what Peter's view is, what John's view is. I've been to seminary and have the Pauline theology. That's garbage. It's Jesus theology through Paul. This is God's word, not Paul's, Peter's, John's. They were the human instruments. You're reading the word of Christ. That changes everything when you read it. Oh, okay. This is, this is the word of God talking to me through these guys. Listen to what he wants us to know. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, 
and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their thrones before the crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Lord, again, I pray that you would use this scripture to draw us to you, to fill us with your spirit, to cause every room, person in this room to become a true worshiper of you. In Jesus, your name, amen. You know, this was written under the Emperor Domitian. The Roman Emperor Domitian was unusually evil. He had had his own relatives murdered to keep in power. He was a man who was paranoid of anybody taking his authority, including people close to him. He was a man who also had passed laws against Christians. And in these laws, he had demanded that they renounce their faith. He had passed laws that were reflected 20 years later in a man named Pliny the Younger who said this, if they denied that they had ever been a Christian, then they first had to do this. They had to pray to the Roman gods to prove that they weren't a Christian. And in praying to these Roman gods, they were words dictated by the Roman governor himself, Pliny. They had to offer incense to the images of Trajan, the emperor, and the gods, and they had to curse Christ, which Pliny, this Roman governor, says true Christians could never do. If they did that, they were discharged. The laws were strict. They were upheld. They were given three chances. After the third chance, they were executed. Timothy was, was killed during this reign. He was uh, beaten to death by a mob for opposing idolatry. This is the culture in which these Christians were living. In chapter 1, verse 9, these Christians were being persecuted. He addresses the book to these Christians who were suffering under the hand of this Roman dictator and a culture that hated them. What would you say to a culture that is against you? What would you tell Christians who were suffering, 
persecuted, marginalized? What would you tell them? This culture blamed the Christians on everything that went wrong because this culture was so connected with false gods and appeasing these false gods. If anything went wrong, crops failed, floods came, earthquake happened, they blamed it on the Christians because you're not worshiping these gods. So it heightened the animosity. Christians were accused of being atheists because they wouldn't worship the gods. They were accused of being cannibals because they had heard that they met together and ate the blood of, and drank the blood of Christ and ate his flesh, and they took it literally. And wild rumors were being spread about them. You can't trust them. They're anti-Roman. They won't go along with the Roman. And because of that, these are the problems that are plaguing our culture. They won't get on board with the agenda of culture. It's okay that you worship Jesus, but you have to include him in everything else. Don't say Jesus only. They were fearful. Christians were afraid. Persecution was hitting. What would you tell them? We're seeing the similar thing happening today in America and around the world. When I was in Pakistan I recently, they told me, the pastor we're partnering with, that they would spread a rumor just out of the blue. And the rumor was that these Christians had desecrated the Quran and made fun of Muhammad. They stormed the whole city near where he lives, about an hour away from where he lives, burned 500 of the Christians' homes, destroyed their churches, looted everything, took everything they had. At the drop of a hat, that's how much animosity is under the surface and suspicion towards them. At the drop of a hat, you spread a vicious rumor and the church is decimated. And they knew that. We're there today. What do you tell Christians who are in a culture that hates Christ, that you're being marginalized? What do you tell them? And the shocking thing in this chapter 4 is he says, come up here and I will show you. Okay, Lord, he doesn't even talk about the nations. He doesn't talk about Trajan or, or Domitian. He doesn't talk about the Romans. He doesn't say, let me show you what I'm going to do to those Romans. He doesn't even talk about it. What's the first thing he does? He shows them God. What's God's counsel for you today? Get your eyes back on me. The first thing he shows his church in a suffering world is, get your focus back on me. Start worshiping me. And I'm going to show you up in heaven why they're worshiping me so that you can get a clue and start entering into the joy of worshiping God today. You know, there's something about this. God's smarter than us. And he created us in such a way that when you're not worshiping the true God, you're dissatisfied with life. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God set eternity in the heart of men. C.S. Lewis said this, when things in this world won't satisfy you, it reveals you were made for another world. Augustine said this, God made us for himself, and we're restless until we find our rest in him. Even as Christians... You can make an idol out of marriage. You can make an idol out of your job. You can look to some person, something, some set of scenarios as your hope and your joy. And it's not going to cause you to be satisfied. Why? Because you're not created to be satisfied ultimately by anything in this world other than God. If that were not the case, then why don't things satisfy people? 
Why would the richest man in the ancient world, King Solomon, in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, say, I got everything I needed, I got every pleasure I wanted, I owned everything, accomplished everything, I was a builder, I was a, it was a reader, I was an author, I had every pleasure a man could possibly want in every way I could possibly want. I said, vanity of vanities, I'm going to be dead, and then who's it going to be? Baby, you're there. You've been waiting for a certain change in your scenario, waiting for a change of somebody in your life where if they'll just change and treat you better, maybe your marriage will get better, then finally you'll have joy back in your life. And it's not happening. You're going to wait your whole life. Those things are fine. Relationships are good. But that man or that woman's not God. They ultimately cannot provide for you what only God can provide. So where does Jesus take us? He goes, I love you. You're my church. What's the first thing a suffering church should know? Look up and behold your God and start worshiping him again. So this is a call of God. Later on in Revelation, yes, he's going to tell us what he's going to do to the world when he returns. But right now, the priority is his people on earth focus on worshiping me. So as he does this, he tells us some things. He tells us that there is some basic things about worship that he wants us to know. First of all, the importance of worship. It's, look in chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, come up here and I will show you what things must first take, must take place after these things immediately I was in the Spirit. So the importance of worship was revealed by its priority in the revelation of Jesus. It's the first thing he reveals. It's, it's also important because it's the basis of comforting us. Verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9 this is written to people who are suffering. It humbles us. In chapter 4, verses 10, the 24 elders who will look at to represent God's people as believers, what do they do? When they get before him, they fall down. It humbles them. Did you know worship will level the ground on a church in a second? And it also unifies them. For chapter 5, verse 10, every tribe, people, and tongue are all worshiping before the Lord. You want to get unified, start looking up and worshiping the Lord together. It levels the ground. No big shots, nobody low, nobody self-important. It removes self-importance, pride, goes out the window, excuse me. <laughs> I'm not going to hear about this at home. <laughs> I've actually dropped my glasses before, because I, I have, and, I'm always, and I didn't realize they fell off the platform, and they're on the stage next to me. This is just a couple weeks ago. And I noticed there's a few women at the church just looking. I didn't know why. Finally, this woman couldn't blurt it out. You're going to step on your glasses. So I picked them up, and I go... I've got a bunch of surrogate wives in this church. They're all looking at what I'm doing. <laughs> Pam has a bunch of minions in our church. Their job is to observe what I eat. And the office, our office is always filled with candy. It's not me that eats the candy. It's the women that make me eat it by putting it in the office. God wants us to know something. It's important that you worship now, then what is it that they're worshiping God for in this chapter? What's the fuel of worship? Number one, theology. This is one of the most packed sections in the whole Bible of theology. Theos, God, ology, study, the study of God. There's no mention of man. This chapter is all about describing God. Theology. And the source of, therefore, the fuel of worship 
is in what God's revealed about himself. Come up here and I will show you. In other words, this is not intuitive to you. He doesn't want you to imagine what he's like. Worship is not rooted in you imagining God. Stop that. Worship's rooted in you amening what he's revealed about himself, not you trying to sense it. It's this revelation of himself that is the foundation of worship. So if we're going to do anything, and you want to really get close to the Lord, stop worrying about how you feel and start getting back to what he says. Come on, and I'll show you. I don't want you looking at yourself anymore. Stop looking at the Romans. I'm going to show you something. You intuitively don't know this. I have to reveal it to you. You're not going to sense it. You're not going to imagine it. I'm going to have to reveal it to you. Your basis of your view of God will come from God, not you. You're a dangerous source of theology, by the way. Apart from God, you on your own, you're a dangerous source of theology. You can imagine all kinds of things and claim there be from God, and I have no truth in it at all. The Bible says the heart of man is wicked, deceitful above all else, including self-deceived. So go back to the Bible. Secondly, the fuel of worship is God's word, theology, his word. Secondly, it's the glory of God's rule. He says immediately in verse 2, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. That word throne is used 13 times in this one chapter, 37 times in the book of Revelation. It's not talking about a piece of furniture. It's talking about what it represents. The throne is a place where who sits on it? The ruler. So the ruler of all sits on his throne. In the ancient world, of course, that would be like our White House. That's where all the authority resides on he who sits on the throne. God's first vision that he wants us to see of himself is that he's on his throne. Why would he want him to see that? Why would he be preoccupied with talking about the throne? Because he wanted them to no longer be afraid of Rome, of Domitian the emperor, of human rulers. They're nothing. My children, I'm on my throne. They're not. Now, what is it about his rule on his throne? Well, he wants us to know several things about this rule, of this throne rule. He is, first of all, he is presently ruling. It says in verse chapter 2, there was one who was sitting on the throne. That's present tense. He doesn't take vacations. He's constantly on his throne. There's no recess with God. There's not portions of the universe that are out of his control. He doesn't have information about. He's continually on his throne. He's also, another thing about his rule, is he sovereignly ruling. Not only presently ruling, but sovereignly ruling. Notice, there's no indication of him being voted into this position. He pre-exists all the creatures that are there by eternity. They all say it. You've existed forever and ever. He was ruling and does rule apart from creatures' affirmation. That's why man's resistance to Jesus in the future will be pointless and fruitless. Why? Because he he views the rules of man, the power of men, the rulers of men, he equates them to something that is a drop in the bucket. Isaiah 40, verses 13 to 15. Like a dust on the scales. He says, it, the, the nations of the earth, the rules of the earth are as nothing before me. 
And then he goes, they're less than minus. They're less than nothing. So you got this speck, grain of sand. I'm freaking out. The grain of sand might roll on me and crush me. What am I going to do? It's a grain of sand. He goes, I'm going to blow on it and it'll be gone. It only seems big to you because you're so small looking up at the grain. It's a grain of sand. So he wants to know he's universally ruling. He doesn't require man's vote. He rules the universe apart from any human or creaturely permission. J. Vernon McGee, the old Southern Baptist preacher years ago, in his southern drawl, used to go, he rules the universe. If you don't like his rule, find another universe. It is the way it is. He rules not only sovereignly and presently, but universally. That is, he rules over everything. There's nothing that's not under his rule. It says this in verse 11. You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. So what's under his rule? Everything that exists. Anything that had a beginning. He rules over good and evil. Now this isn't in the passage, but just something that I thought would be encouraging for you to know, and especially for the suffering Christians. Did you know that Isaiah 45, 7 says this? God is God. He is the one who is forming light and creating darkness causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Wait a second. You're ruling over calamities? You're ruling over crime? Disease? Why would God want you to know that? Understand the Bible in its context. He's ruling in the sense of he sovereignly oversees and permits it. He's not ruling and causing it. James 1 says, do not blame God when you sin or when others sin against you. They're doing it. So God takes no blame for evil. But he's on the throne and he permits it. Man's own choice to do evil, he permits it. Now why would he want you as a child to know that? If you didn't know that and something evil happened to you, you go, I guess God doesn't love me. God wants you to know, despite the evil that happens to you, and most of the Christians in the Roman times were being persecuted, many of them died. Has God stopped loving you? Nope, I'm still on my throne. Well, what's this mean? I'm working good purposes through their evil. Trust me, that's a whole other area of what Jesus has to talk about at another time. That is, well, why does he allow the evil? Several things. He allows evil, what? As to display our, his power in our weakness. There's something about suffering that makes you weak. Physically, mentally, circumstances, boom, 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 boom. They just weaken you. You can't take another step. You should be depressed. You should be anxious. You should be angry. But Jesus goes, I'm only allowing that so that I can display my grace in you. Because Paul begged to get out of the suffering in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Lord, take away this evil. Take away this suffering. I can't handle it anymore. Three times the apostle begged Jesus to deliver him from the suffering. So you're in good company if you're praying, hey God, can you take this off of me? You're in good company. You should be praying that. You're human. No human in the right mind wants suffering. So don't feel bad that you want Jesus to heal you and want Jesus to change your circumstances. But listen to his counsel to Paul. Paul, in this case, I'm not going to heal you. For my grace will be sufficient. For my power will be displayed in what? In your weakness. 
oh, so you've allowed this suffering to make me weak so that when I depend upon you, it displays your power to people. So it's a gospel. It's a, much suffering in the world resulted in many coming to Christ as they saw Christians suffering. Trust in the Lord. He uses it for his glory not only to make us and display his power in us, but to teach us to trust him because we cruise through life month after month acting as if everything's here. He goes, no, you're just getting too independent. I love you too much. I'm going to pull some of it away. Then you're back on your knees trusting him. He loves you too much to go your own way, so he allows suffering and disappointments. Okay, these people in Rome are suffering under the Roman Empire, and he wants them to see, I'm on my throne, children. What are you going to do the next time you read headlines that discourage you? He's on his throne. What are you going to do next time you're suffering from illness? You're on your throne. You're good. You're working good purposes. That is the source. One of the first things he reveals about them is his rule overall. By the way, just to show you later on that God is over, that is, permits, and he's sovereignly over allowing evil, in chapter 13 of Revelation, verse 7, it says, regarding the Antichrist, who's called the beast, it says, and it will be granted to him. By who? By God. It will be granted to him to overcome the saints and persecute them. He's going to allow his people to suffer. He's going to allow them to be overcome. He will hold the Antichrist and every human being responsible. Yet he's going to work great good and display, display his power. There's going to be the greatest revival on planet Earth when the church is suffering its greatest. Revelation 7 says, who are these? It's like this little parenthetical vision. All of a sudden he sees multitudes around the throne and white robes and harps. And he goes, who are these? Who are these? These are those who came out of the great tribulation. They were killed by the Antichrist. They came out. They used to be on earth. They're now in heaven. Why? They died. So where'd they come from? Hundreds of millions standing before the throne of grace that are there because they saw other Christians suffering. They persevered. So Christians, the greatest revival, God uses your evil for great good in other people's lives, including your kids. Do you think it's possible God would want your kids to see you going through tough times? Your relatives that you've been praying for? Your co-workers? God's on his throne. There's something else to worship God for. Verse 3, the glory of his beauty. He says, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone. It's almost like a diamond. It was reflecting with brilliance, radiating out in all directions. And a sardius that was a fiery, bright red in appearance. And there was a rainbow around his throne like an emerald in appearance. That's exactly what Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel saw in chapter 1 of Ezekiel 600 years earlier. There's this indescribable array of beauty coming from his presence. First Timothy 6.15 says, God dwells in unapproachable light, which nobody can see or has seen. Now, there's the way you're built right now, you would die instantly if you saw him. You're not going to be disappointed with the radiance and beauty and majesty of God. He wanted them to see that, the brilliance of the colors. Many have debated what's this color sardius mean. It could reflect judgment. The rainbow around it could be a picture of God's covenant of mercy like he did with Noah. These colors reflecting different aspects of his person and glory. 
there's something else that makes him worthy of worship, and that is he's being worshipped by everybody that's in anybody right now. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, that is by, by everybody who's anybody, I'm referring to God's people of all ages. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. We know from chapter 19, verse 7, that white garments refers to righteousness. That's why the Bible pictures heaven as a wedding banquet, and you're invited to it. You better have the right clothes. No king would let somebody into a reception of a wedding if they weren't dressed properly. So he gives the metaphor of a of a wedding and go, you better be dressed right or you're not getting in. To show human beings, you better be clothed in something other than your own righteousness. The Bible says that you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ the moment you put your faith in him. Did you know how you're going to look when you stand before God the first time? You're going to look amazing. I'm 70 now. I go, Lord, what's happening to this body? What's happening? If you didn't know the Lord, you'd start panicking. I better do something. No, you're going to die in a few years, John. Own up to it. But there's coming a day when you're going to look amazing. What's it say in Jude 24? He, Jesus, is going to present you before the Father's throne, faultless, with exceeding joy. The righteousness that you enter, am I good enough? You'll be clothed in a righteousness that's not your own. I don't know how God does that. He credits it to you. When you believe in Christ, he credits you that righteousness. So these people around the throne that are worshiping them are all God's people. There's a lot of debate. I don't think it's really profitable to go into the 15 views of who these 24 elders are. It doesn't matter. They basically represent God's people on some level. And they are there because they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They have crowns reflecting their victory over death, their victory over all that the world would have done to them. They stand as conquerors and victors, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He wants this beaten down church to know that. Would you look up and look at what people who are on the earth are doing right now? They are worshiping. The glory of being worshipped by his people. There is also the glory... In verse 5, something else that fuels worship is his holy majesty and wrath. There's something terrifying about God that causes creatures to tremble while they're worshiping. Verse 5 and five says, Out of the throne came flashes of lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, please don't get in the habit of looking at verses like this and putting in any meaning you want. You can't do that. It's not... You're not playing according to the rules of interpretation. All these are metaphors to picture a reality. And the reality is that these sounds and peals and thunder is what God did. And when he terrified the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, I remember Moses was there and they're getting the Ten Commandments and the mountain was covered by thunder and lightning. And so the people were terrified. I don't know about you. I had lightning hit maybe 50 feet away from me. When I was a kid, it terrified me. It shook the earth. Everything stopped. You've been in a lightning storm back in the Midwest. It's just like this. Unbelievable. God says, you little creatures, I'm going to let you see a little bit of my power, my awesomeness. This power that he's displaying around the throne 
is to remind his creatures of his holiness and his wrath because he displays it before his wrath comes. He's about ready to display it on the earth, so he lets them in heaven see a display of his power. It's the glory of his majesty and his wrath. Fearful and terrifying. The seven lamps of fire, we can find out what that is by going to Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 10. It talks about it. And the seven lamps of blazing fire, it says, are the Holy Spirit. So it's referring to the fact that God, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, is right there going to manifest God's holiness, blazing fire, manifesting his displeasure on the earth towards their sin. So he says, the full Holy Spirit of God. The seven is a number of completion, of course, in the Bible. So again, it's a metaphor letting you know that God is worthy to be worshipped because of his holy majesty and wrath. But there's something else he says in verse 6 and 7. He's being worshipped by the most, by the greatest creatures in the universe right now. He says in verse 6, before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like a face like a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. It would be, I think, of no profit to take 15 minutes and give you the 12 different views on who these four living creatures are. We know this as a common denominator. They're angelic beings. They're not humans. They're angelic beings. The different faces and looks to them, there's much debate as to they characterize different aspects of their power, of their wisdom, of their beauty, all reflected in this one creature. These creatures are described elsewhere in Isaiah chapter 6 as cherubim the highest of the angelic order. So they're the ones who do the immediate bidding of God when there's great calamity going to come upon the earth. So he says, I want you to know, child of God, I want you to see this. I don't know, why did Jesus want to see this? Because you know the, the most terrifying beings you could possibly imagine, even greater than any human beings, they're up in heaven right now worshiping me. So he is worthy of worship now, these angels say some things about God, and they pack in an amazing amount of theology in one verse. Unbelievable amount of theology, as he lets us even hear what these angelic cherubim are saying to God as they worship him. In verse 8, it says, they do not cease saying, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the word, means separate from sin. Separate from creatures in his perfection. It's a word that R.C. Sproul sometimes would say it's an overarching word to refer to the, the, the perfections of God. They're saying, perfect, perfect, separate from us. How far above us are you? How far in your perfections are you above you? Well, read what else I say in Isaiah 55 when he says, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my ways above yours. How much greater is God in his intellect than you? How much greater is God in his power, in his wisdom? in his beauty, in his goodness, in his love, than creatures. He goes, well, look up at the stars. Go to the farthest part of the galaxies that you can find. And I'm further than that above you. Get a running start off this parking lot, off a ramp, and see how far you can get up towards the heavens. He goes, of course, you, if you've heard that speed of light is 186,000 miles per what? Per second. Two and a half seconds to get that light to get to the moon. Thirteen minutes to get to the sun. 
five years to get to the nearest star. To get to the outer galaxies, which they now believe are billions of galaxies, not stars, each galaxy filled with millions and hundreds of millions of stars, is one with a thousand, with a hundred zeros after it that many light years away. And they haven't even probed the end of the universe yet. In other words, you could get on a rocket ship, press it into warp speed, go the speed of light for billions, trillions, quadrillions of years, and not even reach the out, not even reach the outside the neighborhood of the of the universe. And he goes, see how far that is? That's how high I'm above you. And you and I get to see him. You get to look into the eyes of the one who is that infinitely above us. Holy, holy, holy. He also says, the Lord God. Almighty, which is the word omnipotent. He can do anything. He can speak the word and bring a universe into existence by himself. Who was and who is, who is to come. He is eternal, has no beginning, no end. He's worshipped because he's infinitely powerful. He's infinitely, he's, he's eternal. And he's infinitely above us in every way. When the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever... The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have done what we have said and removed the Romans from power. Therefore we're happy and rejoice in you. For you've given me everything I've asked and given me my health back. They, don't, they could care less what's happening on the earth. Their worship isn't diminished at all by what the Romans are doing. Worthy are you. They know what's happening on earth. Worthy are you, Lord. Why? Because you created everything. Now, you guys, if you're physicists, and I'm not, you would know there's two laws of thermodynamics that prove that the universe is not God. One of the things our culture and worldwide idolatry does, according to Romans 1, is it attaches to creatures and creation divine attributes. Like, for instance, now they'll say, well, if the universe wills, I guess the universe brought us together. They attach to the creation attributes that only belong to the creator, divine omnipotence. The Bible indicates that God created, the word means out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, with no help, no process. How do you do that? How, how can he just bring the physical matter of the universe into existence out of nothing. That's impossible. He'd have, to be, he'd have to be God to do that. Yeah. That's what makes him awe-inspiring. Out of nothing, he speaks. Out of nothing. Doesn't need your help. Out of nothing, he will help you. Out of nothing, he will work in your life. You're flatlined. You're zeroed out. Doesn't matter to God. Keep trusting me. Out of nothing, I will work in your life. I'm the God who creates out of nothing. So, they're getting that. To create out of nothing, first law of thermodynamics says that the universe is not self-creating because there's no processes they, they can observe anywhere in the universe in which matter is being created. So it didn't create itself. Second law is the universe is winding down. Therefore, it's not eternal. If it was eternal, it would not exist anymore. So it didn't self-create, and it's not eternal. 
Listen, world, I created this. It's not self-created. It didn't pop into existence. Sure, you come up with your Big Bang theories. You're fools. Who created the stuff that banged? Don't want to talk about that. Let's just start with the stuff. You're blowing it. You're starting with stuff. Where'd the stuff come from? They won't talk about it. The Bible says in Romans 1, they refused to honor God, refused to worship Him as God, therefore became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. That then affected their morality. Because there's no God, they gave themselves over to every kind of sin. Sexual sin, personal sin, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. They're not doing that in heaven. And you're not doing that now. Therefore, you're not worried about the world anymore. I've got a God who's where? He's on where? He's on vacation. Where is he? He's on the throne. Continually, university, universally ruling right now on the throne. Relax. Any suffering that comes, God, I'll pray against it. Yes, I'll stand against it, but I'm not going to lose any sleep over it because you're what? You're ruling. You're on your throne. He wants his church to remember that. He's on his throne. Now, here's some just closing tips. And you know what it means when a pastor says he's closing? Absolutely nothing. Okay. Here's some closing thoughts on what God would want us to know about worship, just to remind us. Worship starts with truth, not your feelings. You don't have to wait around to feel better. You don't need mood music. You don't need mood lights. You don't need to set the stage. You can worship God at any time. When you come to church, engage your mind onto God. You have an audience you're before the throne. Engage your mind. Sing to him. Sing his prayers to him. Rejoice in him. You don't need anything else. There's no self-preoccupation in worship. There's no preoccupation here with anybody else. There's, isn't it wonderful that there, there, isn't it wonderful to no longer be having to think about yourself? Isn't that wonderful? Get your mind off yourself. You don't have to think about the world. You don't have to think about other people. It's you and God. It's wonderful relief. Go to God. No self-preoccupation. No mentioning in this passage of their feelings or their intuitions. No, no attempts at manipulation or setting the mood. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar set the mood for worship as 2,000 rulers from around the Babylonian Empire, he gathered them together to worship the statue that he had made of himself, and he set the stage by having an orchestra playing all kinds of music. He set the stage by having them all do it together. And if we see everyone else doing it, it must be cool. And he set the stage for everyone there emotionally to get involved. I'm the king. You're going to worship me. The music's playing. Set the, set the orchestra loud, super loud. Set the orchestra, names even the instruments that are all playing at the same time. At the sound of that, all of you stand. They're all standing. And wow, worship me. And there's, they all bowed down at that sign. 2,000 world rulers bowed down except three guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they go, he's not God. I'm not worshiping him. Doesn't matter about the mood. Doesn't matter what the thousand other people around me doing. I know who's on the throne. And even if he has to kill me, 
I'm not doing it. It just helps you not be worried about people as much. So no preoccupation with yourself, no preoccupation with your feelings, no manipulation, no motivation. Worship leaders are unemployed in heaven. There's no worship leaders in heaven. They're all beholding him. I like worship leaders. It's cool to get somebody to get our thoughts together. Absolutely, it's valuable now. But true worship, you don't really need it. They're God-focused, and they're praising him in words continually, day and night. So, Christian, we are getting close to the last days if we're not in it. Um, Lord willing, if God lets me, I'm going to continue to preach the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation is not about scaring people. It's about exalting Christ. He's coming. He's ruling. My people, focus on what I've called you to focus on. So I want to tell you, Calvary, dear Calvary Church, we consider it an absolute joy to worship with you guys and to be a part of the same team with the gospel. We consider it a joy. This is like our privilege, like I said, our privilege that God would allow you guys to be a part of us. And so we love you guys. We're looking forward to not only worshiping in heaven, but reaching people for Christ right now through that. Lord, I thank you for this time. Thank you for your reminding us, Lord, of your great power. Father, I have to confess, sometimes I let my mind, and I wait too long for feelings. Your spirit is constantly prompting us, worship me now, worship. You don't have to wait. Stop. Start talking to me and praising me right now. Lord, that's what you'd use to comfort your people and unite them and humble them and free them from fear of men. Thank you, Jesus, for letting us worship you. And thank you, Father, for letting us worship you today. In your name we pray. Amen.